Today, the thesis is that imagination is your interface with reality or God or the infinite, and that this constitutes a new form of reasoning coined by our friend Colton, uh, known as conductive reasoning. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, yeah, we can kind of start there. We can kind of go to the origin of conductive reasoning. When I was about 23, after reading a bunch of different forms of philosophy and ontology and software and mathematics and all these different kind of abstractions that you could put in your head and fill your head up with to reason about the world, I pretty much came to the conclusion that there are as many of those forms of reasoning as there are entities in the world. And that actually there is a certain amount of strength and rigor that comes from having a grasp of as many of those forms of reasoning as possible for a variety of reasons. And that I connected that back to some readings that I'd have in formal logic, which talked about the main forms of reasoning in in historical and mathematical circles, which were uh, inductive, deductive, and abductive. Inductive is kind of mathematical, where it's if you believe these axioms are true, here are the logical conclusions, or here's what you can prove to be true assuming these original axioms are true. Deductive reasoning is a little bit more like Sherlock Holmes, where you walk into a room and the bed's unmade and there's dishes on the floor and it's kind of messy and so you deduce that this person doesn't really care about their hygiene or they haven't been home for a while and you deduce a bunch of different things about the situation based off some observable yeah. facts or evidence. The, the, the point is the deductive extraction of an interpretation from a set of existing facts. Right. Um, abductive reasoning is something that Charles Sanders Peirce spoke about, who was a logician in the United States at some point, and that was the spontaneous construction of novel concepts. The ability to connect two things that don't seem connected. Right. To put two things together that otherwise wouldn't really make a lot of sense together. That's more abductive reasoning. And a lot of people think that that's kind of combinatorial creativity and, and how anything new happens is two things that weren't previously talking to each other talk to each other. Yeah, just like uh, new recipes, new ingredients meeting. Yeah. And then I, it was partially off the realize, realization that that's a framework. Like that's inductive, deductive, abductive. That is a framework for what's going on in reality. And there's those three forms of reasoning, but that... I could have said seductive reasoning and yeah. it's like the logic of seduction right the logic of like persuasion and manipulation and how reasoning goes into that and in that reality there's about as many ways to seduce someone as there are people to be seduced or yeah. things I mean, to try it's, yeah, yeah i mean when you say it out loud you have like this infinite universe yeah. and somehow we've broken it down to only three modes of like interpreting <laughs> how yeah. things happen or the logics that can be used to explain or reason about what's going on. Yeah. So once I had the inductive, deductive, abductive, and then seductive, I was like, <laughs> well, then the only, I could keep going all day and I yeah. could probably attach that to other words beyond just ductive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I could attach that to phys physics and talk about ductile materials and how to reason with materials in that way. But I was like, it, it reaches the point of infinity where then it becomes conductive reasoning, which is like, okay, reasoning is a good thing. It's good to have a reason for things and it's good to have a strategy and a schema and a process and yeah. 
um, any number of ways to describe what is actually going on. And it might actually be a great thing, um, other people call these heuristics, to have access to as many of those as possible. And that actually that might be a way to what uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb calls optionality, which is like you might want to make choices based off of what's going to give you more choices or what's going to what won't eliminate a bunch of choices for you what won't consign you to certain fates and so conductive reasoning was then that to me this was on the edge of philosophy where philosophy was dying and there needed to be a new approach to thinking itself and conductive reasoning is, is very much like creativity yeah there's a certain power to forms of reasoning that contain a bunch of other forms of reasoning or forms of reasoning that just literally lead to more options that lead to more forms of reasoning that mm. lead to more ways of logic that's interesting yeah. a form of reasoning that leads you to more forms of reasoning yeah yeah that doesn't actually create uh, a decisive final proof truth conclusion which if we look at our reality, there are very few examples of that. Yeah. Um, it's mainly things are fluctuating. Mainly there's uncertainty. Mainly every day we wake up and we have certain illusions or certain practical facts about what is certain. Yeah. But for the most part, finality is not something we greet regularly. Yeah. I mean, even now in science and mathematics, like chaos theory yeah. and, and complexity and you know complex adaptive systems, only now we're starting to get new frameworks and new ways of understanding systems that we thought we understood for a really long time. It seems like the umbrella to, to, to catch all of those happenings in a way that can be kind of um, distilled. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other thing it, it does is it liberates you to see people for who they are. Like mm. it liberates you to see like there you you who claimed objectivity are not objective like right. you just made a decision about a certain way to reason about right. things yeah and that gives you clarity about being able to see okay why did they choose these axioms these principles these objects this structure this principle for why they were trying to get to where why did they decide to do this form of reasoning what yeah. self-interest did it serve what final objective did it serve yeah and now I can disabuse myself of the illusion that they had this God logic, the reason above all reasons, like the reason itself that yeah. like, then if, if I can say reason, then I can say you're unreasonable or mm-hmm. you're irrational. Right. And yeah. I can say that even if you're not unrational, yeah. even if there's a reason for what you did, it just doesn't conform to mine. So I can say, well, that's just irrational. Yeah. That's just a reason. I don't, I don't have to deal with that. You're crazy. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I'm logical. Yeah. I'm a logical person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, we're, you we're all that logical. Yeah. yeah, we're all logical. It's just how we use logic. Yeah. It's what logic we use. Yeah, the, yeah. the most irrational person, you any any the the mind boggling thing is not that an insane person would be illogical. It's that there's an internal logical process going on in that mind mm-hmm. where everything that it's doing and saying makes sense to it. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't translate to the exterior reality and you can see it and be like, whoa, I don't want to be like that. Yeah, yeah. But the wild thing, the insane thing about insanity is inside of the insanity, it makes complete sense. Word, yeah. And that's, I think probably that's close to the reasons why people stuck to those three it was like, all right, well, you know, we maybe they tried a, a bunch before and was like, well, these don't map very well. Like, we aren't actually able to do things constructively with these other forms. Yeah. And these ones seem to be the ones that are the most stable or provide the most um, normalcy for the largest amount of people or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Because that would be like the, the rational and pragmatic alternative to something like Derrida's deconstructionism, where it's just like, I'm going to deconstruct everything. Mm-hmm. 
and then there's going to be chaos and there's going to be like free thinking and free yeah, will yeah. but but there were reasons those structures were put up in the first place right yeah like there's a utility to yeah. that that I think often assigned the main value of a form of reasoning or a form of logic is like, what is the utility of this line of thinking? I mean, utilitarianism and utility is just, uh, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't buy, I, I, I think, I think utility and utilitarianism and use value are all very occurrent concepts. Mm. I think in their, their philosophies of convenience and philosophies of, of optimization and best paths and and all these kind of things that it's very it's very au courant it's very it's a fad to think like that yeah yeah um i i'm not a hipster but i'm i'm leery of ways that it's popular to think yeah yeah i mean i mark twain says something like that like if you ever side with the majority you should like consider yeah you should just be like mm. yeah I mean, when I when I hear conductive reasoning or even this thesis of imagination as the interface with reality or or um or with God, like my experience. And I actually, like the third one that you said, imagination is the the interface with infinity. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the craziest and scariest part of imagination is the infinity of memory and vision and dreams. Yeah. And what to do with that. Yeah. And that's what I was gonna say. Like the one thing that makes me think of that everyone can relate to is like your dreams. Or, uh, yeah, like, I mean, people have dreams, people have nightmares, and they are reflections of something that's going on. Those things have their own, like, kind of reasoning to them. It, it's reflective of, of a state of, of, uh, of emotional state or um, mental states, and, and usually all of the states kind of, like, overlapping. And then the other thing is, like, in meditation, they say that your meditation follows your imagination, and you can use very visual practices in order to make yourself feel different things or send yourself to places. But those are kind of like the, the easy ones for me of how I can imagine this conductive reasoning playing out or, or my experience with this imagination interface. What is like the, you know, when we talk about mapping back to reality, what are the ways that, that you've used this or ways that you've, I guess, seen it used or you know, the value case or whatever for, for this conductive aspect. For conductive as opposed to other forms of logic. Yeah. First of all, it's creativity itself. So it's just like... It just is, kind it, of. Yeah, it, it is. Yes, it is the, It is closer to the way things are, that that there are billions of competing modes of reasoning happening all the time. Right. And they're clashing. They're colliding. They're not always neatly integrating. Yeah, yeah. Um there are machine universes in hyperspace where there are algorithmic constructs constantly logically meeting each other, which is wild to think about. That, yeah. Like at speeds beyond our ability to fathom executive logics that are purely inductive, deductive, um, not even abductive, inductive, deductive, like literally have to file, follow very prescriptive structures and rules and do exactly what they're programmed to yeah, do. Yeah are exactly connecting at points of impossible speed above us in, in the internet. Yeah, yeah. Which that in itself, just to stop and think about for a second, is like mind-boggling. Yeah, because software definitely thrives off of, of some of these modes that, that are like most popular. But yeah, I think it's like, but humans are not software. No, like, no uh, we're more like designers and artists than we give ourselves credit for yeah. I, yeah, I think that's kind of like a, if you stop to look around, like obviously everything started as an idea and then we like designed it and built it and molded it and, and so on. And yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's like 
conductive reasoning then is just a more honest way of approaching being at all. Yeah. Well, it's like it's like narrative reasoning. Mm. It's like there's a lot of stories. Yeah. And some stories are better than others, and some stories are are structured perfectly, like poetically or or mathematically or intentionally or whatever. And then other structures, other stories just have cool characters or just make you feel a certain way or have enduring cultural value. Mm -hmm. And that if you look at logic a little bit more like culture or a little bit more like stories, I guess, yeah, then I think you have a more realistic view of logic and how it functions because it's not objective. It, I mean, it is, mm -hmm. but it, it's objective in theory. In theory, it's objective. In right. practice, it's not. Right. Because it has consequences. Yeah, I remember you made a distinction the other day of like, you know, the West has written like a lot of philosophy, but before there was all these like philosophy books, before they had built these boxes and these isms and these, these ologies, there was, you know, the mythologies. There was like the Bhagavad Gita and there was like all of these really elaborate, uh, you know, we use the word psycho policy type of stories that mapped kind of an internal universal world of humans as you're saying it's just much stronger narrative and it's more kind of all-encompassing yeah well it, the way that we view we spoke about this was that there was an evolution that i would basically say occurred upward after christianity through europe that kind of terminated in the enlightenment era and french rationalism that then continued um, in europe and moved over into the u.s and and then evolved into utility and use value and some other forms of reasoning that we have. But that fundamentally was this secularization of reasoning mm. and this increasing abstraction, increasing conceptualization of what thinking and philosophy is. And all of this is theoretically, again, theoretically designed to make you a more intelligent person, a more educated citizen, a more rational thinker, um, uh, this or that, and, and, and the other thing. But that simultaneously in the East, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, they have these same kind of frameworks and principles and and strategies and schema to get to a point of enlightenment. And and they have rich mythologies that are like directly related to teaching those philosophical principles. And you could say that's what we have too in, in terms of our history of story and history of literature mm -hmm. and history of literary theory and critical theory and, and all these other, uh, what we call the humanities, that, mm -hmm. that is, that is our way of, of not making a firm division between philosophy and, and I don't know, education. Yeah. Yeah. Word. Yeah. It makes me think of, uh, how you said the other day that like, uh, thinking is an art form. Yeah. If we're thinking about reasoning as just like tools or like like just different modes, it's like um, I'm thinking like you're a painter and abductive, deductive, uh, you know, those the, like these are just like colors, you know. Well, so one cool. Yeah. Yeah. One. Uh, the reason I think in colors and aesthetics is I find it's more beautiful and more emotional and more and honestly more pragmatic. It's yeah. not. It's, it's more powerful. Just overall yeah. It's too. just like they're it's also less prone to confusion. Like, mm -hmm. and that's the other thing is like you, you can talk a long time about talking about nothing or talk a lot and feel like you're saying things and you weren't saying anything. I mean, mathematicians that I know, like our buddy Hamza, logician, I mean, we talk about these things all the time and fuzzy logic and, and where his 
our minds connect basically because mm-hmm. he, he's formally trained in these things and he can read proofs and he knows what the notation means and how it implies and builds up arguments and and he'll have emotional reactions to them where it's like oh no you didn't yeah like yeah. how do you, oh my what yeah yeah and like that's all super re- that's the same thing when i'm if you were to watch a movie mm-hmm. or i'm gonna read a book of poetry or something and i see renee char drop a poem and i'm like how what yeah, yeah. how you put language together like that yeah, it's yeah. the same thing that he experiences with mathematics yeah. and but he but when we get to talking I mean, we just we just stare at each other and be like, "Hmm, is it possible to communicate?" Yeah, we're like first. Yeah. What are the axioms by which we're going to even interact? Right. Yeah. Because he's like, "Yeah, I mean, after all my research, after all my research in math, it's pretty much like axioms and analogies. Hmm. It's like all communications. Yeah. People are just making analogies at each other. Yeah. It's not like what things are. It's like how oh, the anecdote, this, that, put together, structure up, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Not what things are, but like how things are. Because people get lost in analogies and metaphors, and like people do not at all share the same sentiments about analogies either. Which is, you know, to your point, like, are we communicating? How do no. we communicate? Yeah. Yeah. Mostly no. Yeah. Mostly love is communication. Emotion is communication execution of certain projects in a business context is communication Word. and mostly besides that we're kind of doing a dance yeah basically a dance and we're not it's if it's about the communication then it probably is not that valuable but if it's about the like hey what's up if it's about the dance for the sake of the dance yeah then then it might it might be both valuable and fun because i'll tell you it's the same thing with poetry where i i get to the bottom of poetry and i'm like well it's pretty much like you see an image or you have a feeling or an energy and you try to put words around that thing. Mm-hmm. And yet when you when you put it on a page and you put it in, in front of somebody else, they read it and they're like, what What does that mean? I have, What are you talking about? I don't even know how to, whatever. And you're like, well, I don't really know what I'm talking about either, but mm-hmm. I know that I saw it really clearly in my yeah, head and it felt beautiful and powerful to communicate. Yeah, yeah. And it's like whether or not I did a good job of that is is something else. Like no, no, it's not. It's not even that. It's like even if I do a good job of that, you word. might have no idea what I just did. Right. Yeah. Word. Because yeah, I think you know what what's left out of those things that we're putting words around is like ideas, and that's where you get into abstractions. Like I'm putting words around an idea as opposed to an energy, emotion, image, and that's like where you start to get abstraction because, you know. Yeah, are you the type of person that it's easy to understand right away? Right. Or not? Yeah. And is that difficulty in understanding you because you're so deep and complex or is it because you're full of shit? <laughs> yeah, word. And that's the question. Yeah. Because the minds that I respect or the ones that I interact with where it feels like they can execute, they can be hardline, they can whatever say what needs to be said. And they have these amazing imaginations mm-hmm. that they can, they remember things, they can tell stories, they can visually describe phenomenon in a way that make those phenomenon immediately tangible and empirically feelable mm-hmm. to me. Right, yeah. And people that I feel like, maybe you know what you're talking about, maybe you're very inf- informative and maybe you know a lot about a lot of different things, but it takes so much energy to understand what you're talking about, I don't really want to. Yeah. So. For me, poetry is something that's immediately valuable. Like, like if you put something, if you're trying to understand poetry, you've probably already aren't uh, reading it in the right way. Mm. If you're trying to make a logical and literal interpretation of what's happening in that poem, mm. that's not the way that I read poetry and I write poetry. Mm. 
I read poetry because I'm like, this is a powerful, powerful poet. Mm. I don't know what's going on here, but it's beautiful. And that's why I read poetry. Is it like you're trying to see what they saw type of deal? Like, you, or uh, Well, at this point, it's more like familiarity. Like, oh, this person felt the same way about the world, saw some of the same things, went through some of the same stuff, and found a language for it and smashed down powerful words on it. Yeah. But, like, it never occurs to me to want to know what he literally meant because I know he didn't literally mean anything. Right, yeah. That wasn't the point. Yeah. Because you can read Shakespeare or you can read a poet. You can say, like, I have a dog. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have told me a fact. Mm -hmm. And that is true. You literally have a dog. And you have communicated to me that you have a dog. Mm -hmm. Or you could describe what your dog is like. Mm -hmm. His personality, his affect, some stories, some really powerful, compelling stories. Or just the time you looked into the dog's eyes and started meditating on the nature of doghood and what it was (laughs) like to psychologically experience other people who are ten times your size and right. taking care of you. And what, and that's poetry. Mm. All of that is poetry. Right. Everything that is not the literal fact is basically poetry. Yeah. Phenomen- that's why I, I, when, in philosophy I never really liked the abstraction, but I love phenomenology. Yeah. Because that was descriptive me was of the experience yeah. itself. Like yeah. how well, you're 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 even acknowledging that you're describing something and not prescriptively abstracting sets of cognitive principles that govern what it is possible to think. I don't know. Right. Yeah. No. Because I was gonna, It makes me think. Like, are there are there forms of logic, or maybe when you adopt a form of logic, almost as an ism, as like a personal ism, are you just more prone to bullshit, or are you just totally blocked off from certain kinds of thoughts or certain forms of understanding, or, or all of these things? Like, you essentially limited the kind of knowledge you're able to intake, the kind of knowledge you're able to communicate, kind of experiences, and how you're able to even translate that for yourself. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I, and what's interesting is what you just described, that phenomenon, is like we have a friend who is like that in art. Yeah. And then I have a mentor who is like that in business or is who is like that in math. Mm-hmm. And, and that they're all men mm-hmm. and they all have very elaborate, complex interpretive structures, whether mathematical, artistic, or strategic that they use to map what's actually going on and that at some point that actually interferes with their perception of what's actually going on. Who's to say any of us have any idea of what's actually going on? But some people are easy to quickly fuse and communicate with and build a shared common understanding and some people are lost in the ivory tower or the crystal palace Mm. and getting them out of that is not possible or or is really challenging yeah so it's like is conductive reasoning then a reasoning to exist alongside these modes or is it almost like an admission that there are as many modes of these reasoning as there are people or entities that can reason 
A good way to think about it is conductive reasoning is a form of executive creativity that like the reasoning point was to kind of restrain raw creativity. There has to be a, a logical structure to creativity for the sake of creativity it can be fun, yeah. but it can be overwhelming. Yeah, that makes me think, should someone accept this premise, whether, you know, subconsciously or consciously, it's like an unlocking almost like and and like you said the ability to synthesize logics as opposed to the division and the boxing of yeah. them and that that inherently is valuable because it opens your modes of understanding and opens your ability to interpret and imagine yeah because i wonder sometimes like if you can enhance someone's imagination because it's like all right i have this physical body it has natural limitations is and it doesn't seem like imagination has those same limitations but we know that there are some people that just seem to not have that great of an imagination who can't can't imagine much outside of their experience and is that a hindrance because of the forms of logic that they've adopted is this something that what do you think you think people can can grow an imagination or improve it or who says they should yeah, that's where I would start. Is I would say in ethics of imagination or science mm -hmm. of imagination, like to, just to ask the question of what what is imagination? Yeah, why yeah. why is it? Why do we use it? Why do we need it? Why do we love it? Why I talk about the interface is just because I have a wild imagination. Yeah, I have yeah. an infinite imagination. I, my primary thing has been like, how do I ground myself in a reality in which my mind is larger than the entire reality? Mm -hmm. Because when you have a, a really powerful imagination you're simulating and compressing all of reality and in a way that makes a multiverse of course logically completely understandable because mm -hmm. you're always living in a multiverse you're yeah, always simulating you're always seeing that this universe and all that we've described and everything down to the mind like the, the minute smallest detail is just one of many different ways things could be configured yeah yeah I don't. I don't necessarily wish that on other people. <laughs> right. Like it is. It, there's no evidence it's made me happy at all. Yeah. And I don't understand it. Yeah. And and almost most of my growth and progress does not come from growing my imagination. Right. It comes from limiting and channeling it into something that's real. That's interesting. Which I mean, the, the word conductive kind of makes me think that like you're. You're uh, channeling it into something. Yeah, well, like a conductor, like yeah. a train conductor. Yeah. Or I've always thought conductor of an orchestra. Mm -hmm. So it's like you have this nebulous thing, and this form of logic allows you to channel that thing mm -hmm. in a way that makes it palatable or tangible. and, and Yeah, real, yeah. grounded, yeah. structured, yeah. Um, without limiting, without like... I'm just very leery around claims of objectivity that are subjective. Where someone gets to say that because an idea is currently powerful, that is objectively true. Or because their logic is confirmed by other people who also feel like that that logic is objectively true. Yeah. I just I just want to dissolve illusions of objectivity to get at the interpenetration of subjectivity and start just identifying modes of subjectivity that are making everything worse. Yeah. And then modes of subjectivity that are almost always good mm -hmm. so which is why i go to optionality and optimistic reasoning and conductive reasoning and here's the other reaction why conductive reasoning exists the people that i know who have very rigorous internal logical frameworks it's not even just that they become hard to communicate with it's that they have dangerous ideas people who get into those modes or get into hyper logical programmatic modes are the type of people who say do you believe in energy it was like, how did this tea get heated? 
Like, how did I get this bottle of water? Like, how the arrogance that exists when you start thinking that your logics and concepts and ideas have these some kind of objective yeah that reality, they're more real than the than reality re, than that, the reality yeah. that you were born into right yeah where it becomes that the logic or the form of reasoning is not your ability to understand what is but to dictate what yeah. is yeah to dictate exactly to dictate what is that's what it, what it ends up you why i say about control is it ends up being about control yeah and thinking for me as an art form is about manifestation and production both internally and in my life yeah and that's where like the interface comes in that interface and and my reasoning between my internal world and my external world that is my relationship to it is how i'm interpreting it and how i'm making sense of it not only to make my decisions but to structure like my my principles or my my axioms and and it's starting from the what isness, as opposed to what do I think should be, or what do I think is like the limitation? Where do I draw the line between what can be possible, or what can be brought into being, and what can't be brought into being? Yeah. yeah. To your point about enhancing the imagination, that maybe it's just, it is the birthright of the individual to have an internal reality that they get to explore internally what it's possible to think and feel and believe. And then of that, how they want to map that into the world that does exist. That is a mix of objectivity and subjectivity and socially imposed constraints and pre-existing structures. And, and that, that, that is all there, right? That's all there. And that, that most of what these different concepts that we're kind of fomenting exist is to reinforce some of the positive not have to be right about any of this Mm -hmm. and dissolve or address some of the negative tendencies in human nature and behavior without condemning or yeah just working really hard to attempt to understand and love yeah yeah it makes me think there was something else that we talked about earlier where there was something integral to dissolving the subject object dichotomy what was that? It was like something to do with phenomenology and how this the dissolution of that is an opening up of like a real conversation now about what is and in that interface. Yeah. Well, subject object creates us them yeah. naturally. It creates the the objectification of other people, commodification. It creates the possibility for um, using other people to serve some objective. Not that these things don't already occur, but there's tendencies around it. Then you have uh, Buddhist experiences and non-dual thinkers in Tibetan and, and Zen and other areas of schools of thought where it's just literally what enlightenment and positive and optimal experience is, is the dissolution of subject and object. It's just like you're you're here. Yeah, yeah. Like, And you don't even need the notion of subject object to really be like, I'm immersed in an environment and I'm making decisions about what to do here. Um, and, and there's no evidence that this isn't all me and, and everything isn't all of us all the time. Yeah. That seems like a pretty natural and reasonable thing to think. Yeah. Cause the thing we talked about the other day was that there are some ideas, there's some modes of thinking, there are some ways of interpreting that are just statistically prone to negativity, to violence, to alienation and so on and so forth. And it's like, how can we optimize our reasons not just our reason to statistically create more love more beauty more optimism and uh and it sounds like conductive reasoning and 
taking your imagination, you know, the hallucinations of your internal world, taking those seriously as things that do spill over into your interactions with everything else is the path forward to that. Like it's how you offset those negative affinities and tendencies. Yeah, I would say it's just what we we haven't really done. Yeah, like it's never been the focus even really. Yeah, it's never been, I mean, thoughts and ideas have always been to understand what is and to control what is. And I don't think thought has ever been aesthetic. And maybe it has, maybe it has. But it's clear to me that's what's missing is aesthetics and atmosphere in the general culture growing up in America in the West. Like Mm -hmm. that I don't think we're missing anything in terms of how to execute in a business capacity. I don't think we're we're lacking on a knowledge of warfare or knowledge of scientific how to re- reproduce repeatable results in a scientific yeah. context and publish it in an academic paper. So I'm just not I'm not even addressing areas that I feel like I'm not qualified to address necessarily and I don't know that they need to address cuz I think they're perfected. I yeah. think we I think we can produce as much science as we want mm. and I I think we already have more science than we know what to do with. Yeah, we're like we we have more people trying to be scientists to prove things that may or may not be of value that will definitely have social consequences. Yeah, word. And personal consequences, but but may not improve anything. It's not even in scientists a scientist's job description to improve anything. Right. It's like understand objectively what is, even if you're studying subjects. Yeah. And even even other than that, it's like just to disprove what like what isn't more more than anything, like like they've backed away from trying to say what is it's like a deductive thing like well we know all these things aren't so this is what we this is what's repeatable so it seems to be empirically true and like that's kind of the best idea that we have so far but yeah it's like none of that has anything to do with improving or like what's important to disprove even yeah so so perhaps the the key thing there is just the subject object distinction might be useful insofar as just understanding what you deem to be subjective and what you deem to be objective. Like, that's a good thing to ask yourself. Right. It's a good way to think. It's like, what's objectively true and what is subjectively true? Right. And probably a primary difference for me is I assume that most things that are in the realm of ideas or society are just, are subjective. Right. And that most things that come out of a person's mouth are subjective. Yeah. Most things that come out of a media outlet are subjective. Oh, yeah. Most emanations, expressions, communications are subjective. Where I draw the line for objectivity is basically history, mysticism, and infrastructure. The fact that things exist, and history, I mean like deep history, like all the human history, yes, but physical, geological history. Right, yeah. So the the cosmological history, the fact that things exist is pretty hard to dispute for me. I'm not sure what that would even mean if I did. Yeah. Um the the fact that infrastructure and we're really good at building things and taking care of the society and we all benefit from infrastructure Mm -hmm. that's very clear to me and then mysticism is clear that it's clear to me that we don't know what's what's going on and Mm -hmm. why we're here and what is the best path and when we don't think about it too much and we just kind of do we can we can make things work Mm -hmm. right so those things are, are pretty objectively true to me. Outside of that, I, I mean... Just the imagination interface. Yeah. Like, that's why I say history, mysticism, infrastructure. Like, 
you can't question that you benefit from infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. You can't question that you exist. Like, because you can only do that if you're someone who's never been punched in the face. <laughs> you, yeah. Or you've not felt pain. Yeah. You have to be someone who's locked in their own head yeah. and believes in a Descartes kind of way, which yeah. was the subject object. I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. It's like, no. No. You are. Yeah. Then you think. <laughs> right. You were there, and then you thought about it. Yeah, yeah. And then, because you were thinking so much, you're like, well, clearly I think, and therefore I am. And yeah. meanwhile, someone punched you in the face, and you were you were not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't have to be thinking to get punched in the face and realize that you are. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Weird. The most compelling philosophy is like war poets and military strategists and gangster rappers and like <laughs> people who's like, yeah, I, I think because I got to use this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Or or physicists maybe who get so descriptively deep with the universe that they look up and around and they're like, what is this place? Yeah. It is made of everything. Yeah. And it, of like nothing. Now they're like yeah. dark matter and yeah. quantum physics. They're like, I thought it was made of everything and everything was matter. And now I'm realizing that most of existence is empty. And what do I do with that information? What are the implications of that? Well, then that's, I think that's probably one of our podcasts next is the, what I have talked to other friends about is the female physics, hmm. like a feminine approach to physics. Our approach to physics is very command, control, dominate, leverage, understand, uh, like rigorously map out, gain power, work. Yeah. Like it has a very masculine poetics to it. Yeah, yeah. And that the future of physics is, is probably in physics being the king or the queen, but with physics and mathematics in terms of how, what we as, ascribed to be truly objective knowledge yeah yeah um but that the future of that it's stalled in a lot of ways and that i think the future of that is feminine just like most other things but you called love power and then you built a science out of it yeah but i've heard other metaphysicians where it's like if you start thinking about particles as being fond of each other mm. as gravitating because of a love and shared and mutual yeah. attraction like that just that creates an entirely different psychological approach to yeah. what you're doing when you're doing science. Yeah, the poetics, as you say. Yeah. I remember I found some some random Greek philosopher that I can't remember. There was like really different schools where it's like, oh, the universe is made of fire. Yeah. No, the universe is made of metal. No, the universe is made of water. And then there was this one dude who thought that the universe was made of love and of hate, and it was contraction and expansion, and that the yeah. universe was actually going through cycles where when it was expanding, it was going through this love process That's of deep. just like growth. Yeah. And then the universe would reach the extent of love and then it would start to contract. And the entropic nature of it is it's hate, essentially. And that basically all of existence was this constant flux of in and out contraction yeah. philosophia it means yeah. love of wisdom word yeah it was it was the love of what is from yeah. the beginning it was not the intellectual cognition of what i can abstract things to be it was the love of yeah. what's true and real philosophy is a feminine term hmm. more on that later the next podcast the feminine physics and the future of uh, scientific poetics um so for now thanks for listening